um, communicating his story, let's talk. Talking about Jesus, talking about his story. And when we do that, we find that, you know, anytime I preach, anytime I speak, anytime we talk about communicating with others, talking about Jesus, that pretty much always comes back around to the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus, whether we're talking to friends, family, our community, whatever it may be. Um, and as we go through this, it's also my hope that we gain some insight about communicating in a way that's going to help us do that better, to communicate in such a way that we represent Jesus well to our community, to our friends, to our family. And as we look through the Bible, we see Jesus, particularly in the Gospels and the New Testament, we see Jesus interacting with people in different places, his followers interacting with people in different places, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately, sometimes in homes, in workplaces, just like we do, just like we do. And that's something to remember about Scripture is that it's very, very timeless. You know, at the time Jesus was in Israel, things were different than they are today. But really, if you took our mobile device out of our hand and gave us a change of clothes, we could, you know, learn language and probably fit in pretty well. People are pretty much people. It doesn't really matter the time frame. Uh, technology changes very quickly, but people are pretty much the same as they've always been. And that's one of the reasons scripture is so relevant. There's just timeless principles in there that don't change. And when Jesus acted, interacted with people, at least in regards to the interactions recorded in the New Testament, most of the time when Jesus interacted with people, it was initiated by someone speaking to him. Jesus, um, he only initiated conversations with other people a few times. I think it's about nine times in the gospel that he does that, which is interesting. But that's compared to around 25 times that people actually came and spoke to him. So there's times that he initiated an interaction with people, but most of the time it was people interacting with him, initiating conversation with him. And then there's also times where there was a third party involved, where maybe he was interacting with someone or something like that, and then a third party comes into the picture and, and says something, and Jesus addresses whatever they might say. And in our passage today, we see two different kinds of interactions that Jesus has. One is an individual one-on-one, -on -one, and then the other one is when a third party initiates that interaction with Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today, and we're going to read verses 9 through 13. If you'd like to turn there, if you'd like to read on the screen, look on your phone, device, whatever you'd like to do. But Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, this is what it says. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's station. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. While Jesus sat at supper in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous but center, sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word this morning, we're grateful for it. It's 
such a blessing that you've made it so available to us. And as we read it, I pray that you would impress upon us the things that you have for us to learn from it, that we would hear those, that we would approach this with a teachable spirit, with our ears and our hearts open. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the first four books of the New Testament, when you read about Jesus and the things he did, you're reading from the Gospels. First four books in the New Testament, uh, often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, meaning they form a synopsis of the life of Jesus, a general summary of his life and ministry. And when you read the Gospels, you see that they're not all exactly the same. They're, they're different. And that's because they tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. Kind of like taking pictures of four different sides of the same house, you get a much better picture of what the house looks like that way, looking at the four different pictures. Although it's the same house, it's just different perspectives of the same house. And that's the way the Gospels are. We get different perspectives, different things, events, different views on what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this particular interaction that we just read from Matthew chapter 9, you can find that in a couple of the other Gospels as well. And in those other Gospels, when Jesus calls this tax collector, he's referred to as Levi. Levi. Now, Matthew and Levi, just in case you're wondering, or if you don't know, they're the same person. Um, Matthew is his Gentile name, and Levi is his Hebrew name, which makes sense because he was a tax collector. He would have interacted with a lot of Gentiles and the Romans. He would have interacted with a lot of Jewish people. Maybe, you know, he felt it was more relatable to use familiar names with the different groups. But to better understand our scripture passage, it's helpful to better understand the people involved. And there's several different groups of people. There's there's Jesus, of course. There's the Pharisees. There's his disciples. There's also tax collectors and sinners. And verse 11 points us in a direction that helps us better understand who's involved here and what's going on. And that verse says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And one thing that jumps out at me when I read that is that the Pharisees put tax collectors and sinners in two different categories. Uh, they gave tax collectors their own category. And I think there's a lot of information in that that's, that's helpful in leading us to better understand this passage. And when the Pharisees used the word sinners, and maybe in other places in the New Testament as well, there's, there's kind of two ways that the word is used, two general ways even though it means similar things. When I was a kid, um, I went to school with a lot of Mormon kids. I grew up uh, about four hours from Salt Lake City, which is like the epicenter of Mormonism. So there was a lot of Mormon kids I went to school with, had some good friends who were Mormon kids. And there was a Mormon seminary across the street from our school, my, where I went to what we called high school. And the Mormon kids, or allowed or maybe required, I don't really know uh, that much about it, so I can't speak to it with any authority at all, but they were allowed for an hour a day, they would go over to seminary and learn about Mormonism. That's how prominent it was. A lot of people on the school board were Mormons and, and so on and so on. But people being people, 
like they are. Like I say, technology changes a lot and very quickly, but people not so much. There were, there were kids who were, you know, friends of mine who would go to Mormon church on Sunday. They would go to uh, seminary during the week, but then on Friday and Saturday night, there were some, not all, but some who would run around with miscreants such as myself and get involved in things that we shouldn't have been involved in. Um, of course, at the time, I was not a Christian and had no plans to become one. So, you know, to say to young people, and uh, if you have the wherewithal to avoid doing dumb things while you're young, you'll be glad that you avoided them later. But there were kids like that, but there were also adult Mormons like that as well. And we used to have a joke that said, if you take a Mormon fishing, be sure you take two, because if you only take one, he'll drink all your beer you know, saying that they wouldn't drink in front of each other. But uh, it's just a joke. And there was a name that was kind of a slang term, I suppose, for, for Mormons like that. And they were called Jack Mormons. And depending on who you talk to, that meant different things. But in a general sense, the idea was that they were just kind of Mormon in name only. They weren't really faithful attendees or anything like that. Maybe their family was Mormon. They were kind of associated with it. But it's just the way it was. And that's not to pick on them. That's not what, I'm, what I mean by that. It's just to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. That's human nature. That's what people do. It doesn't matter if it's a church or a sports club or a hobby or politics or whatever it might be. People are invested in those things at different levels. Some people pick something and they're just highly committed to it. Some people kind of have a loose association with things. You see that in anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. But in our passage here, when the Pharisees talk about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they're referring to people in Israel as sinners who maybe are not as invested in their religious practice near as much as the Pharisees themselves. Um, they weren't necessarily horrible criminals, but they weren't really great at religion either. You know, they probably came around for Passover. They celebrated a few other religious feasts, maybe celebrated Passover with the in-laws, things like that. And, but the rest of the time, they had other things to do. And like many people, church attendance goes up at Christmas and Easter. People are people. That's just reality. And then there's also a reference to sinners that is, you know, uh, much worse than that. But when the Pharisees use it in this context... It's more like, you know, the people, they're not necessarily doing anything illegal, um, but they probably could do better. They weren't criminals, but nobody was really doing much about it either. So when the Pharisees say sinners and tax collectors, they give the tax collectors in that group their own designation, which is interesting because they might not be horrible criminals, but I think they're also saying, well, they're worse than just your run-of-the-mill sinner, too, is what they're getting at with the tax collectors. And... The reason for that was that a tax collector was often a Jewish person. There were probably some Gentile ones as well, no doubt, who purchased a franchise from the Roman government to collect taxes because it was a very lucrative thing to do, kind of like you purchase a McDonald's franchise or something like that. And as there always is, there was a lot of friction surrounding taxes. We've seen that when Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and the Herodians and they asked him a question about taxes. And in some cases, some Jewish people considered tax collectors traitors to their own people because they're working for an oppressive foreign government. And again, as people are people, 
some tax collectors were dishonest and they collected more than they should have. They took more than they should have and they kept it for themselves. Uh, but tax collectors, whether they were honest or not, in general, were, were very unpopular people. Nobody liked a tax collector. So, that, so much so that when Jesus sat down for a meal at a tax collector's house, it triggered the Pharisees to question why he would do such a thing as to sit down and eat with these tax collectors and sinners. In our eyes today, you know, through our cultural eyes, we wonder, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we don't really put someone down for sitting down and having lunch with someone else. But in this time and place, having a meal with someone was more than just eating food. It was a sign of acceptance. Uh, you didn't eat people, eat with people who are different than you. You didn't eat with people who were unclean, which no doubt some of these people would have been considered unclean by the Pharisees. There's, there's a good example of that mindset in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul confronts Peter because Peter had been eating with the local Gentiles there in Galatia. And then some friends of James come along who are Jewish people. And then Peter backs away from them. And he's not willing to eat with them anymore because he's afraid of the criticism he's going to receive from James's friends for eating with these unclean Gentiles. But in this passage, Jesus does two things that go against the religious culture, the pharisaical culture, I guess you could say. Two things from which we can learn to apply lessons in our own conversations with others and how we interact with the world around us, other people. And it's interesting because Christians often think that they're struggling against secular culture. And in some cases, that's, that's true. I mean, you can't really argue with that. But personally, I found one of the biggest struggles for Christians, especially ones that have been Christians for a while, churches have been established for a long time, is Christians struggling against their own religious culture and being maybe unnecessarily concerned with what other people think, what other people do, and worrying more about that than we really need to. But Jesus does two things. One is he calls out Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And the second thing he does is he goes to Matthew's house and he has a meal with Matthew and his associates. And we talked about being bold last week and how that's just, you know, stepping outside of our comfort zone. It doesn't mean being loud or obnoxious or overbearing or any of those things. It's just simply taking advantage of an opportunity. And that's what being bold really is. It's just taking advantage of opportunities to interact with people outside of our circle that we might not normally get the opportunity to. And this is a big challenge. And as I speak today and we talk about this, this isn't a rebuke. I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to beat anyone up. I never come up here with that mindset or that attitude because that's never what I intend to do. But I do come up with the attitude that this is something we should think about. This is something we should consider. This is something we should roll around in our head. And you know, it, it, I may not be right all the time, but, well, I tell my wife I'm right all the time. She might disagree, but, you know, I may not be right all the time, but nobody's right all the time. But there's a lot of tough questions we ask and we consider. There's a lot of things that we go through in life and situations we face that are not black and white, that are kind of difficult to navigate. You know, how open-minded should I be when it comes to interacting with the world around me and other people. You know, what should I be involved with? What should I not be involved with? How far 
should I take things? Because there's a point where I should say, you know, I shouldn't be around this or maybe even this person or this group of people or this activity. You know, where's that point where I say, okay, this isn't something I should be involved in. And there's a lot of things that are black and white in that regard, but there's also a lot of things that are take some thinking and some navigation. How open-minded should I be? When should I speak about things? When should I not speak about some things? What should I read? What should I not read? And like I say, I'm not talking about things that are clear and black and white. There's obviously things to be avoided. But what about those things that I'm like, well, I'm just not sure. Well, we're going to attempt to hopefully clarify that a little better and maybe give us something that we can use as a guideline when we come up against something like that. We live in a time of great opportunity, but with there, that, there's a lot to navigate in how we take advantage of that opportunity and navigate that opportunity. You know, Jesus was bold, and he put himself in a lot of situations that that bothered some people and triggered them and annoyed them. You know, when Jesus upset the Pharisees, for the Pharisees, it really wasn't about what was true. It's not Jesus never said anything that was untrue. For them, it was really about control, controlling other people, keeping their position. They saw Jesus as having influence, but at the same time, he was doing things that challenged their control. And had Jesus had influence and, you know, believed and practiced the same way they did, I'm sure they wouldn't have had a problem with it. But it was about control. And in a couple decades of pastoral ministry, most church problems I've seen have been about that, about control. Someone wanting to control what other people do or one group of people wanting to control what other people do. From the songs they sing to what they wear, all kinds of different things that really, you know, we don't necessarily have much of a problem with but they've been things that I've seen as problems in the past. And that's kind of the, the mindset of the Pharisees. You know, things were changing. They could see Jesus changing things, and they didn't like that. They wanted to maintain their position of control. And they did that by adding rules and standards and thoughts and opinions that God does not to Scripture. And then they tried to hold other people to those standards. And in our passage, Jesus intentionally goes to people who were not very religious or even religious at all. And they were no doubt like many of the people that you and I come into contact with day to day out in the world today. They go about their daily activities, doing the things they do. And they're not people that we would consider terrible or even bad. They're just people doing things. But they're not right with God either. Now, because they practiced a religion of works and morality as a means of righteousness, the Pharisees saw themselves as better than sinners and tax collectors. And the sinners and tax collectors thought the Pharisees were self-righteous hypocrites. And the funny thing is, is they're both right. They're both right. The Pharisees are better at being religious, and they're also self-righteous hypocrites. The sinners and tax collectors, they're not righteous either. But then there's Jesus in the middle of this as the bridge between unrighteous people and God. And he's the correct way to that relationship, that right relationship with God. He's the key. He's the link. He's the way. And this is, you know, 2,000 years ago, but people are still the same. There's a lot of this that we can apply just directly to our own lives. 
And Jesus has a meal with, with tax collectors and sinners, and that, that upsets the Pharisees. But they, they don't speak to him directly. Uh, they speak to his disciples in verse 11. And they ask him, why does your teacher sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's another aspect of human behavior, human behavior, isn't it? That's kind of what people do. It's quite common. They don't, uh, the Pharisees don't go to Jesus and talk to him. They talk to someone else about Jesus. And so this first interaction, Jesus initiates, and he calls Matthew to follow him. And then the second interaction is initiated by a third party. And when Jesus talks to the third party, the Pharisees, this is what he says. He says, but when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in terms of communication, what does Jesus do? And he does this throughout the New Testament. You see it all throughout his ministry. In general, when he's reacting and interacting with, with the Pharisees, what he's doing is he's pointing out hypocrisy, he's pointing out inconsistency, and in some cases even lies, untruths, to the people who propagate them. That's very bold. Okay? He doesn't gossip about it. He speaks directly to the people who need to hear it. And that's a good lesson. That's a good lesson for us. You know, it doesn't do us any good to talk about someone who can't hear what we're saying if we have a problem with what we're doing. Well, unless we're building them up, we can talk about people behind their back if we're saying good things about them. That's actually very positive. But what does it good, when you think about that, what good does it do for me to gossip or complain to my congregation, for instance, about things people are doing out in the world who can't hear what I'm saying? It really doesn't do any good. And did you know that people perceive you in the way that you speak about other people when that person's not there? So the things you say about people, the way you speak about people who are not there to other people, that's, that's how people perceive you. It's an interesting thing. How you speak about someone you are not around affects people's perception of you more than it does their perception of the person you're talking about. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? What he does do is he gives his followers instruction. I mean, he did talk about the Pharisees, but he did say, he's like, okay, well, avoid that teaching. Avoid that teaching. Um, you know, he did take advantage of opportunities. And we see him interact with the Pharisees. That's usually how it goes. He takes the opportunity to address hypocrisy, inconsistencies, and untruths. And there's a good lesson for us in that. And Jesus says to them, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And when you hear that, or when I hear that, it almost sounds to me like Jesus is saying the people he is eating with need the physician because there's something wrong with them. But then I could almost read into that, you know, these people are bad, but the Pharisees are good so they don't need it. You could almost read that into it, but I, and I don't think that's a stretch to probably say that's what the Pharisees heard when he said that. And the tax collectors and the sinners, you know, they, they know they're tax collectors and sinners, and maybe, maybe some cared, maybe some didn't, but they knew how people felt about it. They knew how they were perceived by people. It wasn't news to a tax collector that people didn't like him. Um, they knew they weren't great. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they don't know they're not great. But Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees, well, you guys are sinners too. Uh, but he doesn't say they're not either. Okay? He's not saying that they don't need the physician. 
But had he said to them, you know, you're no better than these people, that would have had zero impact on them. They would have said, of course, we're better than these people. Look at all the stuff we do and how we live. Look at how religious we are. Look at our ritual. Look at our practice. We're definitely better than them. And by their rules, they would have been right. They were better at being religious than the tax collectors and the sinners. So instead of simply saying to them, you know, you're no better than anyone else than these tax collectors and sinners, he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means which is something very relevant for them. It's, uh, it's very similar to when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And other times he interacted with different people. Remember when he said to Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? I think the tone is different, but the message is very similar because the Pharisees prided themselves on knowledge and Jesus addresses that knowledge. And he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. And that's a standard interaction between a rabbi and students or a teacher and students kind of like a school teacher today we're telling you giving you homework you know go home read chapter five and we'll talk about it tomorrow that's kind of similar to what Jesus is saying and he's treating the Pharisees like students rather than teachers and like beginners rather than people who still need to learn scripture correctly and I guess they were a bit taken back by that because they really didn't say much about it Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when Jesus says that, he's quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And the Pharisees knew the scripture well. They knew it, they could recite it, but instead of it shaping who they were, they had kind of worked themselves and created a culture where they used it, adapted it, added to it to shape other people and control their environment. And sometimes good communication involves pointing that out, pointing out hypocrisy, inconsistency, things that are not true, especially when you just point out what the Bible says, not an opinion, it's just what it says. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, he didn't expound on anything. He just said, hey, go learn what this means and quoted a verse. He didn't give him a dissertation. He just said, go and learn what this means. And that wasn't just to insult them. Even though they probably were insulted, I don't think that was his intention. Jesus was intentional about communicating a message to them and probably everyone else within earshot because there would have been several people. But what he does... He communicates his message in a way that's consistent with his character. Communicates his message in a way that's consistent with his character. What does Jesus want us to know? Religious practice, church attendance, prayer, you know, making time for those things, it's good for us. It's good for our relationship with God. We don't want to write that off. You know, sometimes I think the thought we talk a lot about relationship and religion is bad and all this stuff, but there's, there's a balance to that because religious practice is good. Attending church, prayer, all those things are good things. They help us with our relationship with God. They're good for us. Right religious practice serves us well. It serves us well. But as soon as we make it a measure by which we judge ourselves, by which we judge others, or it, you know, it, it becomes self-serving. And when it does, ironically, it no longer serves us well. Right spiritual practice 
service is self-sacrificial. And the Pharisees, well, they practiced a, a self-service, not self-sacrificial. So for our conversation, our communication to be right communication, our character needs to be consistent with our message. And for Jesus, that was definitely the case. Our character needs to be consistent with our message. And in some translations of the Bible, when you read the word conversation, that's what it's talking about. It's like your whole life, not only just the way you speak, but the way you live. And the Pharisees, when they heard that quote from Jesus from the book of Hosea, they would have said, of course God desires mercy. Of course God desires compassion. But that message was not consistent with their character. And that's why they were often called hypocrites. And all people, all of us, and we need to recognize this, are all capable of hypocrisy. We're all capable of inconsistency. We're all capable of telling a lie. We always have been. We always will be. People are consistent throughout time, even though we tend to practice a lot of inconsistencies. We're consistently inconsistent, you could say. But Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, learn what it means that God desires compassion for those who are hurting over religious practice. And we all could take a little time to go and learn what that means. So our character is consistent with the message of the gospel. Again, like I say, I'm not picking on anyone. This is food for thought. Remember we talked about that through the book of Acts when we did our series through the book of Acts. Alleviating the suffering of others validates the message of the gospel. That's, that's what we're getting at. Our character should be consistent with the message that we take to the world. And in a Pharisaical mindset of the Pharisees, the ritual is more important than the mercy and the compassion. Not that they don't think those are things are important, they've just got them upside down. Now, the outward appearance to a Pharisee, the outward appearance of everyone is more important than what's actually going on in their life. In the story of the Good Samaritan, it teaches the same lesson, basically. It shows us the relationship between message and character. And in that story, Jesus tells us about a priest and a Levite and a man. There's no specific designations there, just the, a priest, a Levite, and a man. And I think it's important to understand in that story, you know, we hear about the priest and the Levite. They just walk by this guy who's been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And we think, man, what jerks. But I, we need to consider maybe they're not jerks. Maybe they're not jerks. Through our cultural eyes, we think, oh, those guys were just mean and they couldn't be bothered. But is that the case, though? These are just general people. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. You know, and when you think about it, who would see someone stripped, beaten, naked, left for dead on the side of the road and not feel any compassion at all. There's, there's probably some, no doubt, but most people are going to feel some kind of compassion for that person. And in the case of the priest and the Levite, they see the man on the side of the road, robbed, beaten, and their religious ritual and practice said, you know, I don't think I can touch that person because they're probably unclean and I shouldn't go over there and touch them. It's a religious thought. And I like to think personally that there was some compassion there. 
but they thought, you know, I can't help this person because my religious views, ritual, whatever, practice doesn't allow me to do that. And that's what Jesus is teaching against. He's saying to the Pharisees, you guys have retaken religious practice to a place that I never intended that it should go. Your character doesn't line up with God's message. Now let's think about that, because we're all capable of that. We're all capable of that. Now when we hate someone because of what they think, and then lean on our religious belief to justify that, we've taken things to a place that Jesus never intended we go. If we want to use our opinion of Scripture, things that aren't clearly black and white, to manipulate what other people do or determine whether or not we treat someone well, we've gone someplace Jesus never intended us to go. And our character doesn't line up with our message. That's inconsistency. That's hypocrisy. Even a lie in some cases. And of course we say, I wouldn't do that. I would not do that. That's not me. But let's be honest about it, brutally honest about it, because we're all capable. And it may not be you, but I know I'm capable of it. But we need to be honest with ourselves about that. Are there ways, places, situations, blind spots in our own lives where religious opinion or preference and ritual gets in the way of compassion? And the result of that is that our character is then inconsistent with our message. And people see that. They, they, they understand that. Like, everybody would see the Pharisees were hypocrites. And when we live like that, that's how we're viewed. And as I say, you know, that religious practice, the ritual, you know, at least our modern day version of it, those things are important. They matter. They're not unimportant. It's important that we attend church, for instance. That does matter. Church matters. Other factors matter, too. Let's think about this. You know, I, I may be walking out onto thin ice doing this, but what about some real world application? I've known people who would never miss a church service. They're so faithful in their attendance. For any reason ever, they would never miss a service. They boast about it. They say, you know, they tell me about how, I've had several people tell me this in the past. doesn't matter if the doors are open, we are there and we would never miss it. The problem is that that inevitably leads to looking down their nose at people who don't hold themselves to that same standard. And church attendance is important. But people live in a lot of different life situations, in many different places and scenarios, and different things happen. And there are family situations where some people in a family are believers, some people are not believers. And even among husbands and wives, you know, that's the way it was in my own household for a long time. My wife was a believer and I was not. And I made life hard on her. But when you think about that, you know, what if it's your anniversary and your unbelieving spouse? wants to go to breakfast during the time that you would normally be at church. That's one of those situations like, what do I do with that? What do I do? What would you do? What kind of character is going to be consistent with the message of the gospel in that situation? What if your kid, you know, this one happens all the time. I see this all the time. Everybody seems to want to have little kids' birthday parties on Sunday morning. It happens all the time. Let's say the whole family's invited. And you and your family have the opportunity to go in someone's home, be compassionate, build relationships, love these people, care for them. Should you miss church for those reasons? What do you think Jesus would say to that? Well, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. 
which was very contrary to religious culture. It's kind of the same thing, really. Went and, you know, had ate with non-church people. And it upset the Pharisees and went against what they thought was right religious practice. But your character is the sum total of all your decisions that you make in life. And I think Jesus would say, make the decision that's going to form character into being consistent with the message of the gospel. And you have to make those decisions for yourself. And there's a lot of times where there's difficult things to navigate, and there may not be a clear answer. But in those cases that we talked about, for me, if someone came to me and we were working through this and they're asking, what should I do? And I've had situations like this before. I'm probably going to tell them you should go to breakfast with your spouse. If you can build a relationship with folks, you should probably go to that birthday party. But come back next week. Come back to church next week. What if your friends say, hey, you want to hang out on Sunday morning? You say, absolutely, I'll catch up with you after church. The practice and ritual, it's still important, but it's secondary to the compassion. Now, what about this? Here's one. Here's an interesting thought. What if we canceled church on Sunday morning so that we could go out in the community as a church and do something compassionate? Interesting thought. Religious practice and ritual, they're very important. They're, they're, they matter but they're less powerful than mercy and grace. And it's, it's not an excuse to give up on church attendance to do things like that. That's not what I mean. That matters. I'm just using a church attendance as an example. There's a lot of different things that, that could play into that. But that's character that's consistent with the gospel. That's really the message of the gospel. And Jesus says what you do is important. It matters, okay? You should worship, you should be compassionate, those things build character consistent with the gospel, the worship, the church attendance, the compassion. You should do what's right, but that's not what makes you right. You should do it right, do what's right, but that's not what makes you right. What makes you right is the shed blood of Jesus, placing your hope in him alone, your hope of righteousness in him alone, not yourself, but in him. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because Jesus had enough compassion for you and me to die on the cross for us. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to have a word of prayer as we close out this morning. I think on these things. I know that life's full of a lot of different situations for us to navigate, but when we think about those things, what kind of decisions can we make that are going to form character that's consistent with the gospel message?